We are a social company building the future of healthcare because we believe fundamentally that health is social, that you are not meant to do this life alone, that things don't happen to one person at a time or one body part at a time, that they quite literally happen in interconnected systems. So if we are not doing health in community, we are not fundamentally understanding health. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, and business leaders about what it looks like to raise kids while also building companies. If you're in the thick of it with your career or your business and you've got little ones at home, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. My guest today is Michelle Stevens. Michelle is a clinician, an entrepreneur, a scientist, a wife, and the mom of two young boys. She is a certified pediatric nurse provider. She was trained as a pediatrician, as a nurse. Michelle was inspired to pursue pediatrics when she was seven, and her brother passed away from a congenital heart defect. You'll hear about that story on today's show. After becoming a CPNC, a certified pediatric nurse practitioner, she wanted to better understand early childhood experiences and early childhood stress, so she pursued her PhD at UCSF. That's where she got connected with some of the foremost researchers in early childhood stress physiology, what's happening to children at a young age. The biggest takeaway from her research was that the single most well-understood antidote to childhood stress is for children to have intimate relationships with their caregivers. But of course, that's way easier said than done. So she was at the crossroads of finishing a PhD, becoming a mother, and searching for ways to use this research in a clinical setting. And then her career path totally shifted. That's when she met her co-founder in the back of a Chinese restaurant, and she realized that they could build a new model of supporting parents to help reduce these early childhood stresses. She'll also explain why it's so important to understand and mitigate against these childhood stressors, what adverse childhood experiences are, those are called ACEs, and how they're connected to our lifetime of health. One of the best ways we can do that is to support new parents in the very beginning stages of parenthood. That's the story we're going to hear today. How a pediatric nurse practitioner with a PhD focused on early childhood stress ended up becoming an entrepreneur, raising $9 million to create what they pitch as a new model of community-based healthcare. Also, one note, you may notice that Michelle's company, OathCare, sponsored a few of our episodes. They are one of our sponsors here at Startup Parent. But this show that you're listening to right now is not a sponsored episode. They did not pay to appear as guests on this show. Just so you know, whenever something is sponsored, we will always tell you. We recorded these two episodes over three and a half hours of interviews. Now let's dig into the show. Most business advice just doesn't work for parents. That's why I made a leadership incubator and a support group for business moms where we teach business skills and life skills that actually work for people with kids and people with caretaking responsibilities. It's called the Wise Women's Council. We've been running it for six years now and we open only twice a year for enrollments, once in the spring and once in the fall. If you wanna join a brilliant group of women who are navigating parenting and entrepreneurship and business and life all 
all while raising kids, the Wise Women's Council is a year-long program, and we have designed it with a rhythm that aligns with life instead of fighting against it. We believe in designing work structures that sustain your drive for the long term rather than burning you out. It's a 12-month program with plenty of white space. If you want to find out more about this program and what people have to say about it, head over to startupparent.com slash WWC. It's called the Wise Women's Council, and the link is right in our main navigation bar. So if you go to startupparent.com, you can find out more about the Wise Women's Council today. Hi, Michelle. Tell me about your career journey, because you have a background in the medical world. You have a background in all of the stuff that's led to your entrepreneurship journey. So tell us where your career started. I have been a pediatric clinician my entire career, and I was inspired to go into pediatrics when I was seven. My brother actually passed away from a congenital heart defect, and the nurses and doctors that took care of my family, my mom and myself in particular, was just super impactful for me. Like That was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I actually, after undergrad, got to work at the same hospital where the surgeon that developed the repair for my brother's defect was in residence. So I got to take care of a lot of patients like my brother and have this like beautiful full circle experience. But while I was in the ICU, I witnessed the tremendous amount of stress that parents and children undergo while in the ICU. And that really fascinated me because I felt like ill-equipped to address this and felt like, wow, if we're just wanting them to survive, how are we actually going to help them thrive once they get out of the ICU? Why was it so impactful with your brother? You mentioned that they were so impactful and so helpful. Do you remember what it was? Yes, I remember the exact moment. I had no idea what was going on. But at the age of seven, like, things were just starting to really become more real and realized. I was really getting that, like, my brother was really sick. My parents were really stressed. They weren't around. It was a very eye-opening experience, and I was just soaking it all in. And this one moment, and a nurse did this. I don't even think she, like, talked to me. I don't even remember her interaction with me, but I remember this nurse who took me into this waiting room and taught me about my brother's defect or what was going on with him through coloring. And she was coloring this heart and how it was like the blood was mixing and like, this is the color of oxygenated blood. This is the color of deoxygenated blood and like how we make purple together from blue. And it was just like so easy to understand. And I felt so connected with her and I was like understanding what was going on. I felt empowered because then we took the pictures of the hearts that we made and then taped them up into his incubator. And that's where I met him for the first time. And it was like a way for me to even approach a NICU-like setting with all of these wires and cords and beeps. And I just was able to approach that room and like tape it there and then touch him and then hold him and then be in that room with my mom it was really incredible. I felt like I had this picture with my mom and my brother and I'm like really close with her. And it's just really impactful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's really yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And what yeah. a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, the nurse looked like she actually 
cared about you and she came and she told you what was going on. I think so much fear, both in the hospital setting and in parenting, is just like, what's going on? What am I doing? Where am I going? Why don't I understand this? It's so overwhelming. And to have someone come to you where you are in at your age and talk to you in a language you can understand and do it in multiple ways and take time so that you're not just like, what the heck is happening? That's really, really powerful. Exactly. Now, fast forward, you studied to be a pediatrician. You went through med school. I actually, I'm a nurse. So I became a pediatric nurse practitioner and I was able to practice independently because I actually worked in DC. And so I had full practice authority and I was able to take care of patients and really have this beautiful connected experience of like welcoming new babies and really supporting new families pretty regularly. As you know, you see the pediatrician quite often in the first year of life. I absolutely loved it, but I found that it wasn't a place in which I could actually move the needle on adverse childhood experiences, which was my passion. I knew that there was such a strong correlation to adverse childhood experiences and adult health outcomes. And I really wanted to make an impact, but I felt the constraints of the U.S. healthcare system really prohibiting me from doing that. I decided to go back to school and just wishfully thought that I could influence my own practice with my own research. I went back to school at UCSF, got connected with the foremost researchers in early childhood stress physiology and did an accelerated PhD program with a one in three-year-old at the time. It was a wild time and came out at the end of this program, really understanding one core thing, that the single most well-understood antidote to early childhood stress is for parents to show up as positive, consistent caregivers in their child's life. And this may sound really simple and easy, But it is far, far from that. Because what that requires is parents to actually understand their reactivity and manage it, and then be able to show up for their kids to buffer the experiences of stress in their life. And I mean, there's just a whole host of barriers between the beginning and end of that process that I really want to impact. I graduated wanting to actually put this out into the world, be in the clinical setting, maybe do this through a stress diagnostic because I was more on the physiological side of things and wanted to do a bunch of testing kids because all we really measure in tracking kids is their height, weight, and head circumference, which is a massive disservice considering 80 to 85% of their neurobiology is formed before the age of five. I was on a mission and I came to understand the phenomenon of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And ACEs have a dose-response correlation to seven out of the top 10 chronic illnesses we face today in the United States. And this research, yes, has 40 to 50 years of support behind it. And we are literally just at the tip of the iceberg trying to implement this into our clinical protocols. Thankfully, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris spearheaded these efforts. She was our Surgeon General in California and really tried to put in some assessment measures for the Medicaid population specifically. But since she's been out of office, I think these efforts have really 
gone away. But I was really committed to trying to intervene in the primary care space rather than the tertiary care space to really try to prevent these adverse childhood experiences, which are basically like 10 known causes of stress, traumatic stress in childhood. And there were around abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. But all of this is to really highlight the fact that when kids experience stress and it's not buffered by a caring adult, the adult and themselves put themselves on a worse health trajectory. So they're hundreds of times more likely to get the most common chronic illnesses. They're even like multiple times more likely to die earlier like 10 to 20 years earlier. These are like very well understood correlations that we're just not implementing in the clinical setting. And when I got to pediatric primary care, I realized that even the care recommendations and protocols that I'm giving to moms and babies are not rooted in maternal and child research. So like less than 3% of all NIH funding goes to maternal and child health, considering the exponential amount of growth that happens between the ages of zero and five. It's like 80 to 85% of our neurobiology forms. Why aren't we doing more for kids? We can actually start to understand health better if we start earlier. I got really on fire for this, pursued a PhD in early childhood stress physiology, got connected with the foremost researchers at UCSF, And came out of this program being announced at my PhD defense dissertation, like, hey, the next academic in this field. And that really deflated me. I really felt like, oh man, as a nurse, as someone with all these experiences, I really want to put out in the world a stress diagnostic, something that we can do in the clinical setting to really change this. And the research is ripe and ready for it. I don't want to continue moving the research incrementally. I really want to do something that translates it. I started a postdoc, got on the train regardless, but while doing so, looking for other opportunities, interviewing at biotech, Apple, Google, and really not finding a place for this until I serendipitously met my co-founder in the back of a Chinese restaurant in San Francisco at a mutual friend's birthday party. We sat down next to each other. Our spouses knew each other from being in venture. So then we were introduced to each other and we sat down and started talking and started talking about our passions. And Camilla was really interested in maternal health, uh, working in West Africa with uh, women and children who were sex trafficked. She actually developed this incredible protocol during the Ebola epidemic to actually help understand where the virus would next present so that like resources would be deployed there. Came back to the States, worked on uh, health tech, really started to understand that ACEs were such a big part based on her work in West Africa of delivering healthcare and delivering it in community. When I told her that I knew ACEs very well and this is what my research was in, she was like, oh my goodness. We were so overwhelmed and excited that we got together the very next day and haven't stopped working together ever since. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about ACEs? I'd never heard of this term before, but now I'm understanding it. You said there's 10 known causes of stress. Can you give some examples? What does that look like? ACEs are around the three sort of buckets of abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. There's types of questions around if your parents were divorced, questions around how safe you felt, if like hands were put on you as a child, if yelling was like part of your environment, if your parents were incarcerated. So these are the types of markers of ACEs that will get your score up to 10. So for every ACE is a point. So the max you can have is 10. And the higher your ACE score, the more likely you are to worse health. Mm -hmm. And what are some of those adverse health outcomes? So the most common ones we're experiencing today. So diabetes, hypertension, obesity, congenital heart disease, stroke. Got it. What percentage of people are dealing with this? Like how many people are going to, in our landscape of children and kids, is this like 10%? Is this like 70%? Where are we? What is the population? ACEs are ubiquitous. They are so common. They're not just reserved for folks that are under-resourced or marginalized. Although, yes, that is still very present and want to acknowledge that ACEs are an epidemic. But we need to acknowledge that it is not reserved for any sort of specific population or type of person. My ACE score is not zero, one, or two. And I think even if it is zero, one, or two, we have to understand the weight of that number as well. Someone might have a one or a two that is so heavy for them, that is so life-changing for them, that it feels like an eight, nine, or 10. The weight of that number also has to be taken into account it's highly variable. What really I think helps more than the qualitative knowledge of this study is the work that's being done on the quantitative side to understand stress. So our lab that I worked with really tried to pair the two. So I worked specifically on understanding stress expressed through the autonomic nervous system. So our parasympathetic and sympathetic, our fight or flight and rest and digest systems. There's ways that we can understand stress through our saliva, through our hair, through our blood. And so it's really exciting to see that we can have more accurate, better picture of what our bodies are up to in response to this stress so that we can more accurately intervene and proactively see what is happening so that we can have better measures and protocols to address stress. We're not that far off, but like we are, you know, it's just like, who wants to do more for kids? It's like, mm, this is probably the thesis of this podcast too, but like, mm, you're telling me that if we actually like do prenatal health care, take care of moms and taking care of children, we'll change the world. What? <laughs> That's the art. Yeah. Let's actually do better care of children and moms. Okay. Yeah. Same, same. Well, that's so interesting. Yeah. 
see ACEs, it's just a number. How many different bad experiences have you had? And then how bad were each of them? And when you talk about divorce as one of them, that's half of households. Everyone has various adverse childhood experiences, and that can be elevating the amount of ongoing stress that you can have, which can be leading to worse health outcomes. It compounds. Exactly. That's why when experienced in early childhood, it compounds. There's just more and more life opportunity to happen that if not addressed, becomes this full body integrated experience. Stress quite literally gets under your skin. It's all in there. It changes your biology, your DNA. And so when we talk about intergenerational trauma, like it really does change you. And because it happens in early childhood, it has this time effect that it takes and then manifests in adulthood as these actual chronic diseases that we're trying to cure at the end, right? Like, oh, you have diabetes. So like now we have all these like medications, but like what if the cure for diabetes was actually in early childhood. Because then the way you get wired, this was so fascinating to me, and this is what you're talking about. If you get wired to have like high stress responses, like high levels of whatever it is, to go into the sympathetic mode at the drop of a hat, you might be wired differently than somebody else. So at 25, when someone says to you like something that might seem innocuous, your stress response might be like, Right. You might be living inside of constant chronic stress and these reactivity patterns. What's really fascinating is that our evolutionary biology hasn't really been able to keep up at the rate of change of our obvious culture and society and how like evolutionary we've changed on the outside. And so I have a really hard time reconciling my nervous system, my sympathetic reaction to the world. It's like, okay, we're no longer at a place where we are going to die from like at any point, at any minute. We're not going to starve and someone's not going to shoot us in the back with an arrow, hopefully. But all I'm trying to say here is we have a very exaggerated sympathetic response that hasn't been able to kind of catch up to like where we currently are today. And because of that, that is being overworked and overexpressed in a way that is actually creating a dampening in our response. So like we're maxing out our sympathetic in a way that we're then going to like, it's not going to work anymore. It's going to actually crap out. And we're seeing this sort of high sympathetic sustained response, and then a dampening to the same sort of environment. But folks are just checking out. Their bodies are so fried that they're not able to respond to life with a sympathetic response because it's quite literally done, maxed. That's dangerous in and of itself as well. That reminds me of Anne Helen Peterson's Can't Even yeah, like one of the examples in that article was like, you can't get to the post office to like fill out a form. You know, you read it and you're like, yeah, but it's not that hard to go to the post office. But then everything inside of me is like, yes, it is. It is very yep. hard, right? Yep. Because we're completely fried, completely overtapped. This yep. is why we're so exhausted by all of the different messaging platforms. Like, we're not yep. designed for this. 
And this yep. is just air quotes, regular stress. This is just yep. how with easy stress. And it's totally true. We're all just completely kaput. We're going to take a quick break. If you want to join a brilliant group of women who are navigating parenting and entrepreneurship and business and life all while raising kids, the Wise Women's Council is a year-long program. Twice a month, we bring wise, vetted experts in to support you in your leadership development. Head over to startupparent.com slash WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council. All right, let's get back into it. You met your co-founder in the back of a Chinese restaurant and you have very compatible skills. You're both on fire about this topic. Yeah. And if I'm understanding correctly, this is also fresh out of your PhD and you have tiny kids too. Yes. So yeah. I have a one and three-year-old and I am like, okay, I found this wild life support through my mom's group. How do we replicate that? How do we bring it to scale? Also, how do we actually start to build for an environment in which we can do more for kids and parents? We at first started as a vertically integrated pediatric practice. We were wanting to be like the one medical for pediatrics, but decided to pivot when we found that through our testing prior to standing up full brick and mortar, that we saw great results by just getting moms together with experts and specialists. So we were getting them together on these WhatsApp groups and even doing synchronous stuff on Zoom. And this was prior to the pandemic. This was like January of 2020. So we like had three months of these mom groups. We had specialists. We had moms. We had a facilitator, a parent a bit further along in their journey that would support these moms, hold space for any and all feelings and thoughts. How many years has it been now? About three and a half. Three and a half years. Okay. So you are a venture backed, you're funded. And yeah. how big is your team now? I think we're 14. 14. Yeah. That's full time? Yes. We are fully remote, even though most of us are out of SF, but we're all across the country. We have folks in engineering and products and ops and marketing, oh, but our specialist team are contractors. So we have a whole specialist team and the head of ops to support them. We have over 23 specialists. And when did you first launch your MVP, your beta product? So our beta was just a few months after we raised funding. Man, actually, you know, it was like a month after we got immediately on WhatsApp and Zoom. And this was about January of 2020. So like three months before the pandemic. So we wanted to test our product and services before we built a full brick and mortar. And mind you, yeah, we were like the pediatric practice, right? And what we realized in forming these groups for testing was that they were like resonating in a way that we didn't think. We just thought we were just going to group people. We know intimate community really well, my co-founder and I. We knew that community is important for any experience of getting to know and going through life together. And these moms were like hitting it off. They were loving chatting with each other. We put a bunch of specialists in there, like lactation and sleep and a pediatric nurse, a mental health therapist. 
And they were able to talk about anything and everything and get their questions answered and just relate to each other and say things like, I never even told anyone about this. And then the pandemic hit and then they, (laughs) then that was the only way to go. I mean, they were telling everyone about this and we put a little marketing out there and the groups were just growing like gangbusters. That was the moment where we actually pivoted. I would say like July of 2020, we pivoted to like, okay, we're going to put community first. And also we realized like what we really wanted to do with this whole vertically integrated pediatric practice, we can actually do through these groups and actually more effectively and faster. So take me back because I've got you in January 2020. Yep. So you you spent about six months before, like when did you meet her in, at the birthday yeah. party in the back of a Chinese restaurant? It was August of 2019 and I was still working on my postdoc. So I was working with her. We were meeting up every day. I like read everything. I was like dumping my whole brain to her. We were just having a lot of fun. Like I look back on those four months with just absolute fondness. We were just getting to know each other really well, spending a lot of time with each other, revealing to each other. And I honestly, it didn't click to me that she was like feeling me out for co-founder relationship. I was just really into this and fascinated and I wanted to see it work. And I didn't, I was just like, I'm on this post-op track, but not happy. And here's a friend that speaks my language. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly what it was. And then it wasn't until really she asked me to be her co-founder that I was like, oh, this is obvious. Yes. (laughs) But you didn't know. Yeah. It was actually November because then we like immediately, because I told her and I remember she tells me this with just such beautiful sincerity that she didn't believe that her company was ready or that she was able or that she had the things in place that she needed to go out and raise. And I really was the one that was, oh, no, you're ready. We can do this. This is going to get funded. Wait, what gives you that? Um, Where does that come from? It's my gut. I'm really close with it. I feel a lot through my gut. I don't know if you follow Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram type eight. I'm a challenger. And through the Enneagram, I've realized that I'm a body type and I feel a lot through my body. I react a lot to the world through my body. I just knew in my gut that we were ready and that this was going to succeed. It had to exist in the world. And even though When she asked, I went through a very critical point in time where I just took a lot of time to think, talk to others, pray, meditate around like, is this what I really want to do? And am I willing to give up basically my whole pediatric clinical career and research career that I literally just embarked on for this? And what it really came down to was this isn't going to be here again. Research and academia and and being a clinician will always be there. And yes, it may be impossible to get back into, but this will only be here for a brief Mm. moment in time. So. And prior to that, did you have any entrepreneurship inklings? No. (laughs) My husband is very much on like the tech and and VC side of things. And so I'm like a spectator in all of that. I love it. I was a part of like the early Palantir family and like I'm a part of the Founders Fund family. And I just absolutely love being a part of those networks and just hearing and seeing and just being a part of those folks' lives. But 
we're just two opposites. I'm always research, academia, clinical stuff, and he faints at the sight of blood. (laughs) Our worlds just never felt like they crossed in that way. However, my father is an entrepreneur, and I worked at a very early age in his retail store. Hmm. And I would come with him on jobs where he would like sell his goods and services. And so I really think I have the entrepreneurial spirit in me and it's always been a part of me. And now I get to really pull from that and experience that. I can connect the dots too, because you're talking about how passionate you are to solving a problem. So much of your research is also like, look at what we've learned, look at what we know, look at these things. We have to solve this problem, which is just part of the ethos. So then the original idea, you said it's a vertically integrated pediatric. I don't know what those words mean other than pediatric. So explain it to me like I have no idea what you're talking about. Sure, sure. So we compared ourselves to like the one medical of pediatrics. So we would be a more connected, technological first brick and mortar for practicing pediatrics. So we would be a pediatrician's office, but we would be one that would use technology to communicate and be able to have better findings, better ways of knowing, better ways of communicating, more products and services. So to get like more types of folks to speak into the experience, we wanted to have a whole like yoga room. We wanted to have a playroom, a waiting room filled with diagnostic criteria so that while the kids are playing, we're assessing their development. We wanted to have a whole beautiful space for moms to come and connect and have classes. And this is done a billion times over now, but four years ago, it was still kind of new and not really there. So that was the vision. Oh, so cool. And sounds like you got funding really quickly. We did. We did. And that was, I really appreciate the networks that both of us were able to pull So Camilla's wife is in venture. My husband's in venture. We had a pretty good network of folks that we could go to. And how much did you raise for the initial idea? And did you need to raise again when you pivoted? Yep. So we did about a million for pre-seed. We did about two million, I think, and then six million. So we raised about nine million total. So you pivoted and you're finding that this MVP, which is getting these community groups together, like connecting people with specialists, basically testing the idea of kind of holistic care for this particular audience is working. The pandemic hits you, punches everyone in the face. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't think it's going to be that long. So when did you actually know that you were pivoting? We knew we were pivoting because we realized brick and mortar was just a zero stump game. And we also pivoted because the groups were on fire and we could actually scale this, we thought, pretty quickly through a digital offering, sole digital offering. That was really exciting. The fact that we could, through my network as well, build a robust network of specialists And also, really, we have this vision of building a marketplace for specialists so that specialists come on and our groups are basically targeted lead gen for their products and services. Mm -hmm. A lot of specialists during the pandemic were 
coming away from the hospital system. They were burnt out. They weren't treated well. They were also fired because they were a high ticket line item. And we found them wanting to build their own practice. And in doing so, they came to us as a way to connect with members. And we didn't stop them going to them to be their patients because we didn't see that there was any, I guess, foul play happening there. The members would be able to get their low-lying questions answered in the moment, but then also be able to build a patient-provider relationship with these specialists that were now able to conduct their visits through Zoom and out of state. So that was really an incredible sort of pursuit and company Mm -hmm. all in and of itself. But because of our network of specialists, because of how many specialists were on the platform, we definitely started thinking about we could really create a marketplace for providers. That's interesting. Yeah. Is it still informal or is there a more formalized marketplace? It's informal. And honestly, we don't even like call it a marketplace anymore. We pay our specialists hourly. It's a very exchanged goods for services type model. So we don't employ the marketplace model anymore. This makes a ton of sense, though, because let's say you're hosting a mom's group at your local yoga studio, because that's what I did pre-pandemic. And they say, okay, today we have a, you know, lactation consultant coming in. She's going to share some tips. Anyone who's breastfeeding, like we can get an hour discussion with her. At the end, four people go up to her, right? It's like, wait, this isn't working for me. And she's like, yeah, I'm assuming it's a she. But yeah, schedule a meeting with me. You can hire me. Here's my card. Like, it's not, this is how the world works. So that makes a ton of sense that they can say, yeah, anyone who wants to work one-on-one, this is where you go. Okay, so I want to dig in because what you did is you went from... It's not DIY. What do they call it? They call it no code, right? You go from WhatsApp and Zoom and using a compiled tech stack and then building an app. And I'm sure that took a tremendous amount of resources and energy and planning and also a big question, like, how is it going to work? How are we going to get people here? And I want to know where you are today. You're three and a half years into it. I want to know some of the successes, but I would also love to know what are you facing right now? Like, what's yeah. hard? The people listening to this are peer entrepreneurs. They can yes, yeah. smell truth from a mile away. So we yeah. know. I got all the challenges to throw out there. But where we are today is that we are a large format community. So we went from small intimate groups to building and optimizing for a large format community, taking the learnings and implementing them in large formats creating that magic moment of that intimate community and putting it in a large format place. Hmm. And we're testing that currently. So don't know if this is going to work, but we know the recipe for the magic moment. And we're going to put that in the large format and we're going to scale it. So that's where we are. Can you give us two or three of the big lessons? One, I wouldn't have built an app first. So apps are expensive, you know, need a lot of resources, expensive to market. And honestly, the trend is that people don't want another app to download. Yeah. We were so caught up in the success of the WhatsApp and Zoom and wanting to just create that experience in an app. But also what we were building, there's such high standards for that sort of communication. People have 
iMessage and Facebook and Instagram that are so beautifully done and jillions of dollars funded that like we need to match that. And that was just obviously something that we couldn't do so early on. So keeping it scrappy, keeping it web-based is like the biggest lesson that I wish we would have done. And I will scream that from the rooftops for other folks to learn so that you can honestly reach product market fit before even considering building it up. That is such a huge point. That is such a huge point. I don't think if you're not building an app, just think about how many times you're bothered by an app because it doesn't work in Android or it doesn't work on web or it's like got a bug here. You can drown in the bug fixes that you have to do to fix just one browser system. And you can lose a lot of customers just by having something that's not great. It's the problem of the sophisticated customer market in some ways. They have really high expectations. Totally, totally. I think it goes without saying, but like small groups is hard to scale. Mm -hmm. And this was one of our biggest questions that we got from investors. Like, how are you going to scale small groups? And we did have a plan for it. And honestly, the plan didn't work. And so we are pivoting to larger group formats because we now have a lot more data. We have a lot more paths to get there. But it was just too slow, especially the way we wanted to group folks. You have to get a bunch of folks to then be able to group them based on specific characteristics and then launch them at a time when and where they need it. So we have to get them so early on in that journey which they're not usually realizing they need the product and service until about the third trimester of pregnancy. But that already, they're like, I need it, I need it now. And it took too much time to group. So the timing around it was just not lending itself to scaling fast. Always start big, and then you can kind of go small. But starting small and then wanting to go big. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Yeah, and I'm thinking of other models like BetterHelp and Noom and all of those ones where you want the one-on-one access, the kind of instant DM communication, but then also how do you help people at scale? This is a fascinating puzzle that you're inside of. Tell me about the relationship with your co-founder. And I think that, I don't know, marriage is really hard and co-founder relationships are really hard. I'm just going to start there. And I've seen a lot of them not go well. So how have you maintained or managed your relationship? And what have been some of the unexpected or hard parts? My point around them being a marriage is really one that I hope folks are approaching their co-founder relationship with. I see a lot of like, I need to find a co-founder. How do I find a co-founder? Yes, I understand that not everyone has this serendipitous story like I do, but also like the whole let's whiteboard some ideas and I have a lot of expectations and you have a lot of expectations and I don't know if that honestly works. Same thing as like being a whiteboard founder and just like trying to figure out which idea to launch. I just don't think that's the right approach for a co-founder relationship. It's like dating, right? I honestly want it to come naturally or through more happenstance circumstances than forced, so to speak. So all that being said, it's like we genuinely want to be together. We genuinely like each other. We genuinely like have common interests and a friendship that is already at the base. And then from there, it's just being intentional. 
it's like really setting rhythms and practices of being together and having time set aside together. Of course, like the difference between one-on-ones and things and being able to have time that we just go away or that we spend together. We also, for better or for worse, don't have boundaries around communication in terms of, I just want to be able to tell you this. I'm going to text you it. I'm going to slack you it. I'm going to be able to just reveal, reveal, reveal. Because when I have found myself not revealing to Camilla, that gets us in a whole host of spirals and blockers. Our biggest hurdles have just been overcome by revealing to each other, just revealing our judgments and withholds. And all of this actually, Sarah, has been underpinned by the foundation of learning conscious leadership principles. Both of us practice in forums of conscious leadership. Conscious leadership group is like an actual thing. And Camilla told me about it very early on in our relationship. And I actually didn't get to be a part of a conscious leadership forum until last year. There was like a bunch of like wait lists and stuff around the pandemic that prevented that. But it has changed my life. This has fundamentally changed my life. This perspective of being able to live more consciously, be aware of my reactivity and how I'm showing up in the world, and then being at choice with how to respond. I have the book. I'm thinking of like a, it's a white book with black lettering on it. That's it. Like, yep. It's a conscious yeah. But I could not tell you what any of them are. So do you remember some of these principles? Okay. So I know the first one is taking 100% responsibility. And so that's number one. And I know like it's a buzz term around taking 100% responsibility, but really how I understand it is that you are showing up knowing that in everything that you do or who you are, you are taking 100% responsibility around that, not a little more and not a little less. And anytime you take a little more or a little less, you're probably what is called below the line. And below the line is just an awareness of being in reactivity, being in a state of drama around being the hero of that drama or the villain of that drama or the victim of that drama. And typically you're in all three at the same time. And This whole practice is around being aware of where you are in relationship to the line. And if you are below the line, to outwardly dramatize that, to then be able to be like, huh, step back. That's where I am. Now I can be a choice. What do I want to do? Do I want to stay below the line? Great. That's where you are. Let's accept yourself for that. Do I want to shift? okay, let's go through the steps of willingness to shift. I mean, there's a whole nother podcast episode. It's bringing up a lot of things that I, a lot of stories in my head and things that happen in my partnership. I think it's just like a marriage because I will stomp around the house and be like, I'm grumpy. I'm irritable. Words aren't working. I don't want to talk to anyone right now. And that's me vocalizing, but not yet out of. I'm just like, I don't know the line. <laughs> it That's incredible. Like most people, they're not even connected with their emotions. 
very commonly, my pattern is to not feel my sadness. All of my emotion is anger. Anger is my jacket emotion for sadness. And so I'll go around being angry, not and exemplifying and showing anger, but not all to do not to feel my sadness. So the fact that you are very vocal and aware of all of these emotions, I feel like it's half the battle. It is. And it's incredibly hard. And I think that this is the work, the capital of work of being a human is understanding and articulating all of these feelings. It is so hard. And also kind of to circle back to something you said earlier about parents being really good caretakers of their children. It's very hard to do if you haven't been taught this yet. In many respects, I feel like we're all three, four and five year olds right now because so many of us just have never learned these skills and stakes are too high in some situations for us to learn these skills. Especially when you become a parent, it's like, oh, my goodness, do I want to be the parent that I was exposed to or do I want to be different? This whole concept of reparenting is pretty hot right now. But you're right. And this translates so much into not only my co-founder relationship, but my partner, my husband, my kids, everyone. So you are building this amazing app, which looking back, you might have kept it a web page a little longer. And from what I understand, at this moment in time, you are providing a blend of access to really smart people, experts, yep. to other parents And you use the phrase in a similar stage. So basically, if you got a one-year-old and I got a one-year-old, we're going to be in the same group. So you're going to be matched other people where you can commiserate is the word that comes to mind. Commiserate, but also like share tips. Share. But you also offer, like you've got a really robust blog that started to come out. You've got all sorts of classes. Like I'm kind of stunned. It's like you have three a day on some days. Am I capturing it correctly? And is it sustainable? I have two separate questions. Yes. I have to nod to our incredible specialists. They are on fire for this work. They have told me that this is the way I have always wanted to practice. And this is just like a hope in the system. And they are able to really host topics based on what they're seeing in their practice. So they want, they come and just fill out the spreadsheet and say like, I want to talk about all of these topics and host these intimate gatherings so folks can ask me any and all questions around this topic. I can share a little bit of my knowledge. But really what these live calls are about, and we have, like you said, about six to 10 per week, are about the things that people really want to know and topics that are so under-addressed. And this delights the specialist to no end. I can underscore that 100%, especially because of our experience of the pandemic, I think one of the problems that you're solving too is there's a lot of people who are really, really smart who don't want to be entrepreneurs at all. And the pandemic asked them to be entrepreneurs. So it's like, hey, I'm a social worker and I really want to help people. And now all of a sudden I have to stand up my own online business, build a website, find clients, convince them. There's just so much work. And they're like, I just want to practice, right? And so one of the things you're doing is connecting this community to people who want to be able to practice. But the other thing I think, and you may know this better than I, but that one-to-one, like I'm imagining, I really have empathy for the pediatrician in the pediatrician's office who's doing the same 16, I don't know how many appointments a day, and you get 10 minutes and it's the spiel. It's the spiel and you can't dig in deeper. And you're like, there were 10 of you. Why can't I get all of you and tell you? So it's this community model of being able to serve 
at yeah. scale, depending on what scale that is. Many to I, many knowledge sharing. Absolutely. That's right. But why are we siloing the care? Why are we going one to one? And we had care teams for a while to really test our magic moments and understand how folks were communicating with our specialists in a smaller group format. And it's just perpetuating the existing system if we are not in community with other folks going through a similar stage. Because there's just so much that we can share and it's just much more expedited. Why would a specialist want to repeat themselves 10 times throughout the day when they can say it once and have it be amplified? And reshared and reshared. Yeah. Yep. And then other folks can share their perspective. Oh, I never thought of it that way. Or, oh, this is what has helped me. Or, oh, great, but I have this resource, not that resource. Can I use that? So folks can really individualize it to their own ways and means, which oftentimes content is so generalized, people don't know what to do with it. And even the way pediatricians can offer services and support, it's too generalized. I can't do that, or that doesn't make sense to me, or that's not culturally appropriate. This is something that is really at the heart of oath, really showing up as racially and culturally appropriate in a way that the system just has not allowed for us to. The fact that like, you can't even pick your provider, you can't even pick your core care team, that it, oftentimes it's just based on insurance and what is covered and who is in your area. Both really allows you to pick the people you communicate with and jive with. I am so curious about moderation and I'm curious how big your community has gotten because I read like the Neiman Journalism Lab covers a lot of community building and social media. And two examples that come to mind, one is the TED community where every single comment is moderated, like every single one. And you have to be a member. And then the New York Times, which had a Facebook group, they actually shut it down because once you get to a certain size of people, it turns into status signaling and shaming. Right. And not community. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts there? And is that a problem you've had to deal with? Not yet, because we're not at that scale. I would say we are more towards the every single comment is moderated because of that effect. And what we have seen on Reddit and Facebook, we really do want comments to be addressed in this holistic manner not only by fellow parents, but by experts, mental health therapists, and moderators to be able to speak to that experience specifically, address any and all emotions. If something isn't well-received, how do we really get to the heart of what someone is trying to communicate? I think, you know, we just assume people are inherently good. And from there, what can we create? The examples, by the way, of like, when have you had a sticky comment or what's been challenging so far, if you can share? Let's maybe talk about the anti-vaxxer. So someone who just is completely against vaccinating. I think someone who may come into the group and what we've seen previously are folks that are like, I'm not getting any vaccines and this is all a lie and I've been duped and I'm not going to harm my child with these vaccines. And How our moderators and mental health therapists and quite honestly, all of our specialists are trained to respond is affirmation. I hear you. 
I can understand this makes sense to me, what you are saying. And from there, I want to acknowledge any anger or sadness or feelings or emotions that you may be feeling because of this, because of maybe how you've been treated or why you feel this way. And then you respond with vulnerability. I have experienced a lot of patients who have actually not wanted to vaccinate their children. I also had questions around vaccinating my children. Leading with vulnerability yourself really disarms folks and says, oh, relaxes people. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm seen, I'm heard, and I'm able to relate. This is powerful. And it's not actually until like step four or five where we really get into like other perspectives and data and information that can help inform their decision making. But ultimately, Sarah, what it comes down to is that we are not the authoritarian. We are not this patriarchal system that says you have to do it this way. We are here to empower and support the parent's decision. And that is their decision to make. And we want them to make the best possible decision for themselves and their family. And that's what we're going to do. Mm. And you can't force anyone to make a, a decision. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's really interesting because I think that this is a lot of the cultural challenge that I see in today's world because we've been so socially isolated because so much of our world is online because we're shouting at each other on social media and because you see that we forget to have empathy and kindness and instead we shout at each other how stupid we are or they are, right? And it's not very strategic either, right? You're not going to actually get the thing that right. you're hoping to get by telling someone they're dumb or stupid, even if you do have an agenda and if you don't have an agenda. But it sounds like what you want is to create space for people to make their own decisions. And everything you just said is like parenting. It's, I see you, I hear you. I have empathy for the feelings. I'm going to name the feelings that you haven't named. And I'm going to basically tell you that you're allowed to be here. And yeah. that's in today's world, a really radical thing to do. Yeah, it is. But it is so important. It is so needed, like you said. And we really are up to being a social network. We are a social company building the future of healthcare because we believe fundamentally that health is social, that you are not meant to do this life alone, that Things don't happen to one person at a time or one body part at a time, that they quite literally happen in interconnected systems. So if we are not doing health in community, we are not fundamentally understanding health. So that is our thesis. That is why we're building what we're building and how we're building it, because this works in all the other verticals of healthcare. So we are starting in parenthood because that is such a critical time and moment where we know you need a village, you need community, you need others. But that is not to say that this cannot work across the spectrum. Do you see this as replacing healthcare? No. Okay. There's no virtual vaccines. There's no replacement for being in person with someone. We had early on in our test, we tried to actually deliver a whole pediatric visit through the first year of life virtually, something around the doctor or practitioner's hands 
that parents would describe laying their hands on their child that would just put them at peace and give them that peace of mind. Yeah, it was moving to hear them describe that that was gotten. And then also, of course, in terms of assessments, really hard to feel the femoral pulses of a baby or checked for descended testes or all of that. So <laughs> yeah, check their abdomen or anything that you have to do. Yes. But I mean, technology has gotten really far where you can do these assessments remotely about 80 to yeah. 80% percent of the assessment. And I think we should get there. But we really consider ourselves a wraparound service to your pediatrician, to your OB, to really complement what is being done in the office, to fill those moment-to-moment experiences outside of the office. So you describe it as community-based healthcare. Can you describe that? What does that mean? It means that you do not have to understand your health alone, and you do not have to engage in your health alone. It means that you don't have to have all the answers. You don't even have to have all the questions. That you're quite literally co-journeying with folks along a similar stage or journey to better the health of yourself and your family. So as we wrap it up, I love that you told us about like the journey of finding your co-founder and being surprised. You're like, oh, and this is a completely different path in my career than I thought. And talking about like what it's like to build something, to MVP it, along with the lessons learned three and a half years in. What do you think are some of your biggest takeaways for people when telling them both about oath and about entrepreneurship, about health and about community? If someone, there's a mom out there listening to this and you know that they need to hear from you, what would you say? Mom, I want to see you and know you, that you are loved and that it may seem like you have to do this alone or that you're even better off doing this alone. But I can tell you that that is just not true. That is a lie that we are told. Come check us out. Come try us. We are absolutely free right now. So would love for folks to just get on and ask a question or experience our content and see if it's right for you. I think what I want to tell other startup founders is that healthcare is particularly hard to build. And I do feel like I have an advantage being a clinician. And I am so frustrated at folks who are building for healthcare and not clinicians. I'm actually fed up with it. And so can we stop building digital health if you are not, or at least have a team who is not clinically focused or based? Because I think we're going down a path in which we are just making the existing system shinier with our healthcare rather than actually changing the deeply rooted problems that exist in our system. I just want to slide a podium over your way so that you can talk about all the deeply rooted problems. Like, do you have a piece on that? Because I do. (laughs) I do. Yeah. I was able to give a talk at the health conference and really identify the, the deeply rooted problems that exist in our healthcare system. 
Can you share a link if it's written anywhere or at the talk? Yeah. Amazing. So if you're listening to this and you're a new mom or you're a new parent, really, because you aren't just for moms. If you're a new parent and especially if you have like a brand new little one and you're totally overwhelmed, a technical note for me is download the app, but then also use voice to text on your phone because typing with your thumbs is super hard when you're a parent. And I wish someone had told me this before, but there's a little button and you can talk and you end up walking around your house being like, hello, my name is something, period. Next paragraph. But you learn to talk in this way and you can actually voice to text super fast and it makes all the difference. And it's so much better to scroll when you trust the filter. So I think we're going to look back at the tech era as like Facebook is our high school friends and our college friends. And that's a filter we can use, right? That's a filter, but it's not always the one you want, right? And your text messages are sometimes like your mom, and maybe you don't agree with that person, or maybe you love that person, but you think differently. And the more sophisticated we get with these filters, the more we're like, oh, this is a community where they vetted all the experts. We know that people are compassionate and kind. I think the better it gets. And I'm just really excited for that future because you get to be in communities, whether it's a knitting community or food community or a Jewish community or wherever you need to be, your life gets richer because of it. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being such a champion for what we're up to and for having me on the show. It's been awesome. It's amazing. It's amazing. If you are thinking about joining us in the Wise Women's Council, make sure you apply to join us during our spring or our fall enrollment. Head to startupparent.com slash WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council. I want to tell you a couple of things that people have said about the Wise Women's Council. One of our members said, the business support is top notch. On one of our calls, one person said, my mind is already blown and we're only seven minutes in. Hillary said, Sarah, you are one of the best facilitators I have ever met. And Dana said, if you're somebody that regularly designs community or holds space for other people, here's a place where you don't have to because Sarah has figured it all out for you and you can just be when you're in this space. Caroline said once on a call, she said, I'm normally one of those people that's thinking all the time about how you can facilitate something better. And Caroline said, I don't have to do that when I'm with you. Michelle said it's one of the only places she doesn't have to code switch between so many different identities. She doesn't have to hide being a mom. She doesn't have to hide being a business owner. She doesn't have to explain herself over and over again to different people and have them not understand her. If you are living at the intersection of parent, mom, business owner, leader, entrepreneur, facilitator, or you are running a company, come check out the Wise Women's Council. That's a place I made for you. It's what I needed when I first became a parent, and we've been running this program for six years. Head to startupparent.com slash WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council and apply to join us today. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be in conversation with you. You can find out more about everything we talked about and all of the show notes here on your podcast player, or you can head to our website, startupparent.com. 
I want to give another shout out to all of our amazing sponsors who help make this show possible. We are so grateful to get to work with you and partner with so many wonderful companies and organizations that are dedicated to making life better for entrepreneurs, female founders, and working parents. If you are interested in sponsoring the show and partnering with us, then head to startupparent.com slash sponsor, and you can send a note to our sponsorship team. Did you know that we have a new Substack and we have a secret podcast? Oh, yes, we do. Head to Startup Parents Substack. The link is startupparent.substack.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and check out our secret podcast. When you become a paid backer, when you upgrade your subscription and you join our community, you get lots of perks for being a community member. For our paid backers, I host a monthly private podcast where I dig into the nitty gritty of business building and parenting and everything in between. Listeners and readers get to submit questions, then I pick one or two each month and we dive deep into it. In addition, for our paid backers, we host our Startup Parent Monthly Book Club. This is where we get to talk about interesting books with other smart and interesting and kind people. And I run book club a little bit differently. You can read the book if you have time, but chances are you don't always have time to read the book. So the way I host book club is that anyone can join whether or not you've read the book because I give you a summary of it up at the beginning and then I frame up four questions from the book that we can talk about and you'll always be in rooms with other people that have read the book so we can share knowledge and wisdom. The purpose of book club is to have rich and interesting and insightful conversations not to judge you on whether or not you had a chance to read a book. So our secret podcast and our private book club those are just two of the perks that we offer for people who become community members and that's not all. I love getting to say that phrase. That's not all. There are actually a lot of other perks, and I'm going to let you discover them when you go to our Substack. Last but not least, if you liked this episode, I would be grateful if you would leave us a review. It means a lot to the show, and it helps other people find us. So definitely leave a review. I read every single one of them, and I'm so grateful when I see your name in my inbox and when I see that people are leaving more reviews. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here, and I will see you on the next episode.